0: Someone in their right mind can possibly open up a new gas field or a new
1: coal mine at this stage. There is what I would term a fossil fuel order. There is a complex of power and which simply malforms our democracy away from the common good to serving ultimately the interests of fossil fuel corporations.
2: Really, community legal action is the way things get done, is the way we can get results and the way we can push back, essentially. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University
3: of Sydney. Welcome, everybody, to today's event. I'd like to acknowledge that I'm joining you all from the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation. And I'd also like to acknowledge the ancestral lands that we are all joining from, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thank you for all joining us for this panel discussion, the toxic greed of Australia's gas-led recovery hosted by the Sydney Environment Institute. The Sydney Environment Institute is a global leader in multidisciplinary environmental research. It brings together key thinkers from the university and beyond to address critical environmental challenges My name is Susan Park, I am a Professor of Global Governance at the University of Sydney. I'm currently the Acting Deputy Director of the Sydney Environment Institute and Research Lead for the Institute's Project Unsettling Resources. This event is part of SEI's extraction series that probes the use, impact and future of gas, coal and lead extraction in Australia at a critical point in our changing climate. This evening's panel's discussion will highlight the risks and burdens of a gas-led recovery specifically for regional New South Wales. It examines the policy and social impacts of this decision and the current Australian trajectory more broadly. Panellists will take a community-centred approach to this debate and the discussion will emphasise the importance of having a crucial conversation about how to capture the opportunities for a community-led growth and change especially in ushering in a just energy transition. I'd like to introduce the four speakers for today. Rosemary Nankivel is a farmer and grazier on the Liverpool Plains, producing Angus and F1 Wagyu cattle, as well as broad acre farming. Since 2008, Rosemary has been involved in fighting for the preservation of these plains for agriculture. They have been lucky in managing to stop BHP and Chenoa from mining on the plains. Unfortunately, they are now fighting coal seam gas. David Ritter is the Chief Executive Officer of Greenpeace Australia Pacific. He has been with Greenpeace for nine years, campaigning to secure an earth capable of nurturing life in all its amazing diversity. David is a widely published commentator on politics, law, history and current affairs. And his most recent book, The Coal Truth, The Fight to Stop Adani, Defeat the Big Polluters and Reclaim Our Democracy, was published in 2018. Madeline Taylor is a senior lecturer at Macquarie Law School, honorary associate at the Sydney Environment Institute and a climate counsellor at the Climate Council. She specialises in energy law and has published widely on the intersection between energy regulation, energy policy and land contestation. And Gemma Viney is the research lead On anti-mining community movements here at the Sydney Environment Institute and is currently completing her PhD in the Department of Government and International Relations. Gemma was an honours research fellow with the SEI in 2017 and she has a bachelor's degree in international and global studies also from the University of Sydney and a first-class honours degree also from the Department of Government. So welcome everybody. I'd like to first turn my attention to Rosemary and ask you, as a farmer and grazier from the Liverpool Plains, what your experience has been in fighting several large fossil fuel companies like BHP and Shenhua.
2: This
0: whole thing started in about 2007 or 2008 and um, it was an extraordinary action. Um, Maurice Yemmer granted a licence to BHP to begin with initially And, of course, all the locals were very upset because it's very much a farming area. We very much value our underground water and we all think that we're incredibly lucky to be farming in an area such as this. Um, So it's... And the the response was overwhelming. There were so many good people that have been committed to such a long time to saving these plains. Um, We have been gobsmacked at the level of government, in, not intervention, just the way that they are so automatically aligning with the coal and coal and gas companies. Um, I'm pretty sure that all your viewers would know about Santos being at the um, Climate Summit in Glasgow, and it's an extraordinary influence that they have over the government. So it's been a very long haul, but we've had some Incredible highlights. We've had um, possibly the most significant thing in saving the plains, and I believe this will have to be applied to coal sand gas, was Tony Winter's introduction of the water drug trigger bill in the dying ages, stages of the Gillard government. And that has been very, very significant. The Liverpool Plain sits at the top of, is actually part of one of the largest catchments for the Murray Darling Basin. So the water issues in this area are. Um, very, a huge. So that water trigger has given us a great deal of hope for our future battle with the um, coal sand gas company. When this Narrabri project can be shown to impact upon the aquifers in the Oxy Basin, which underlies the Liverpool Plains, the amount of water that coal seam gas is going to extract is truly horrific. Um, we've had some terrific support from the Aboriginal community, the local Kamilaroi, and they've been very positive about it. And, and there's the diehards who have very much been with this site all the way through. Um, I think, you know, some of us go off and have a break and come back. And luckily there's always somebody else that's ready to um, step into your shoes. We've, we have we face huge Problems with Santos because they have such control not only of the government but of the media. Um, they launched several advertising campaigns that were just dishonest. And through help of um, the independent and Sandy Keane in particular, we managed to have some very very misleading advertisements taken off national TV, only to find that they been uh, being shown in Adelaide and Melbourne in the picture theatres. So. You know wherever we go, there's this sort of constant double standards, and you know, we're up against it. But I think no one in their right mind can possibly open up a new gas field or a new coal mine at this stage. We're just it's too late and it's just foolhardy. So I don't know why Sandals are hanging in there, they probably want the big payout. I might add at this stage, um, BHP and Shenhua were paid a total of $617 million to leave the Liverpool Plains. Um, and that was their compensation. And we had John Barillaro turn around and, and say, well, I've you know, i am stopped mining on the Liverpool Plains. And less than three weeks later, he was launching the coal-same gas industry on the Liverpool Plains. So, you know, it's extraordinary what's happening. But um, there's been some fabulous people that have helped and intervened and we just have to keep going until we get rid of them. Not too much to lose. This is this is a this area is um, twelve hundred square kilometers. We produce more than a fifth of the agriculture in New South Wales. So twelve hundred square kilometers is quite a tiny area in terms of food security. We're absolutely essential to the future of New South Wales, and the, and you know agriculture is quite a good export industry. So we're not the the leaners that some people say that we are. Yeah, you know, we. That we have this fabulous water resources. Everything is against these projects and I can't understand how they have got this far, but we'll just have to see.
3: Thanks for explaining just what it's been like in order to sort of fight fossil fuel companies. Perhaps I can turn to you, Richard, David Richard, right now to um, give us your insight as to why it is. I mean, I think, particularly given what Rosemary has said about. Um, you know, having different companies being bailed out out to keep the fossil fuels in the ground and then the move towards coal seam gas. Why do you think the federal government has had this sort of gas-led recovery in response to the COVID-19 pandemic and and resultant recession, given that we are in a climate crisis?
1: Thanks uh, very much for the question, Susan. And look, just to acknowledge Rosemary with great gratitude your work and your heart and your effort and the work of all those who've been involved with your campaign because um, the sacrifice that you've brought and the passion that you've brought to that campaign I know is for, you know, your patch that you love, but its consequences, as, as you know, are also enormous for the rest of us. So you're not only standing up for what you know you believe is right, but the rest of the world's got a got a great reason to feel a debt of gratitude to you, and that goes for every activist, reluctant or otherwise, in every community around the world who is standing up to to fossil fuel industries in defence of land and water, uh, and the climate, and community, and history. And all the things that are precious. So, um, a really deep heartfelt. Thank you. Um, so look, I reckon, uh, I reckon Susan, probably the question I get asked most of all is, um, how on earth do you explain the madness? Um, because, uh, we know that we know that fossil fuels are no longer popular. The last major climate survey found that 67% of the Australian population adult population, it would be higher among the kids. 67% of the Australian adult population wants ambitious climate action now, and that includes a majority in every electorate in Australia. Um, we know what the science says, and this is not just you know um, uh, the science as it as it might be relayed by um, uh, hippie environmentalists. As bodies like the International Energy Agency, which has said that there should be no new coal, oil, or gas to have us on a global trajectory uh, to. Uh, managing to keep under less, or to have a chance of managing to keep under less than 1.5 degrees, and that existing um, gas needs to be phased out by 2035. So there's no popular mandate, and there's no scientific basis. Um, so I get this question a lot: is you know wh- what what on earth is going on? Um, but in a sense, uh, as Rosemary said in her opening, that. On, a, on a, In a week that has been replete with embarrassment for Australia, you know, a country that we are part of and that we love, but has been so deeply embarrassed by the performance of, of our Prime Minister and our Energy Minister and what they are bringing to global debates, in a week replete with embarrassment to see the Santos sign there as part of the Australian uh, presentation to COP in Glasgow, in a sense gives you the answer to the question as well as giving you an incredible visual representation of the problem. And the answer to the question is that there is what I would term a fossil fuel order. There is a complex of power which which exists in a kind of hegemonic way and which simply malforms our democracy away from the common good, away from the public good, to serving ultimately the interests of fossil fuel corporations, of which gas companies uh, like Santos, uh, like Woodside are are prominent among them. And this fossil fuel order functions most obviously in terms of things like corporate sponsorship, uh, sorry, um, like uh, electoral donations, I'll come to corporate sponsorship in a moment, like electoral donations, uh, like uh, the lobbying that we know goes on, uh, like the uh, revolving doors of um, corporate, uh, fossil fuel corporate uh, appointees um, who end up in ministerial offices, who end up in the public service, who sometimes end up in the media, and... Um, uh, and, it is, and so this is the sort of the core of it. And then it exists uh, in a sort of penumbra of um, firms, the, the law firms, the accountancy firms, the management consultancies. Uh, then it exists uh, sort of further out um, in a range of, of sponsorships or corporate partnerships. Um, you know, they're, they're all the, the the sponsorships, for example, that Santos engages in Narrabri or If you look over in Western Australia where Woodside is proposing um, uh, the Scarborough project, which would be the single, uh, it's part of the Burrup Hub, which would be the single largest climate bomb in Australian uh, history. Um, Woodside sponsorships all over the shop. Um, And then even outside the the sponsorships, it's there in a kind of, um, in the public imaginary, in the way that we think about the way that our nation and that our society functions. It's part of, if you like, of the way in which the place is conceived that ultimately you don't get to say no to fossil fuel companies. That's not how things are done round here, mate. Um, And it's only when brave communities um, uh, or, you know, environmental NGOs or, or bold academics stand up and say, we are having none of this. Um, that the whole show uh, grinds to a halt and the fossil fuel order is brought to account.
3: Thank you, David. I, I'm particularly taken by, of course, this connection between what we do with the local has these global implications. And, and obviously the Liverpool Plains is incredibly important for not just what happens to the Liverpool Plains, not just what happens to the Murray-Darling system, not just what happens to Australia's agriculture, but what happens globally. I mean, every every CO2 equivalent tonne that goes into the Earth's atmosphere is tipping us over our carbon budget, and this is obviously going to have global ramifications. But I want to come back now to that very local level and ask Gemma Viney about her experience um, in doing research in New South Wales with communities that have been fighting fossil fuel extraction, what what what, is the, what have those experiences been? And and can you tell us a little bit more about what this means in terms of um, the concept you're using of environmental justice?
4: Absolutely. Thanks, Susan. Um, And I'd also like to start by saying that I'm also zooming in today from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'd like to acknowledge traditional custodians of this land and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. And I'd also really like to, similarly to David, thank Rosemary for her insights into the actual experiences of those at the centre of this debate that we're having. Um, so my research investigates the experiences of Australian communities within resource management and extraction conflicts through the lens of environmental justice. But what I'd like to talk well, and so what I'd like to talk about today, and hopefully piggybacking, I think, a little bit off what Rosemary's already detailed, is how those that I've spoken to within the Narrabri community are articulating their concerns for social impacts, sorry, and their experiences of environmental justice. Um, so last year, like, many, many others, um, I prepared a submission to the Narrabri IPC hearing based on a series of interviews that I'd undertaken with residents of Narrabri and the surrounding smaller communities, as well as those impacted by subsidiary developments related to the project. So those conversations were framed around what impacts those community members anticipated should the project go ahead, as well as the existing and cumulative impacts which are already being experienced. And I think that's um, super important. So a key concern that was raised by participants was the sense of loss. Lost time, lost livelihood and the sort of cumulative effect that that has both mentally and physically. All participants indicated that they'd had to invest significant time and research in order to just properly understand a project which, for several of whom, as Rosemary indicated, had essentially become their neighbour over the last decade. Participants described feeling misled, at times intentionally, by both the government and Santos regarding the full scope of the project and its impacts. This meant individuals had to take time away from family, friends and even work in order to investigate questions that Santos failed or refused to answer. So social impact guidelines dictate that communities should have access to decision-making processes, and this necessitates transparency in order for communities to be in a position to provide informed consent. Participants instead described mental and physical stresses resulting from time and energy spent investigating the validity of Santos' claims. It's also an essential feature of procedural justice um, and instigates a phenomenon of campaign fatigue in which communities facing decade-long battles with mining companies will eventually begin to acquiesce in what Triver et al. describe as a pattern of acceptance with themes of inevitability and disempowerment. Campaign fatigue is also fostered in the dynamics of powerlessness and disenfranchisement, disenfranchisement sorry, brought about by an unjust prioritisation of mining interests over communities and in the confusion associated with an overload of poorly communicated information which communities are required to sift through in order to just understand the full scope of a project. So the next most consistently raised issue by participants was the shift in the social dynamic of the community and the damage caused to personal relationships due to the contentious nature of the project. Respondents described the loss of relationships with neighbors and friends within social circles and community groups and the overwhelming feeling of being unable to speak about the project for fear of the breadth of the divide between those in favor and those opposed. Importantly, this was also there was also a consistent fear that this social divide would only become more prominent should the project be approved. One respondent described this sort of shroud of distrust across their neighbourhood that had been seeded by the implication that a landowner in their locality had accepted money to host a worker accommodation. And another described the breakdown of a local rec- like community recreation group based solely on disagreements amongst members regarding the Narrabri gas project. All of this contributes to a slow but distinct dismantling of the culture of a community, a sinister and intentional disruption to the social fabric that leaves people feeling isolated in their struggle to oppose the development and pushes those out who no longer have relationships to tie them to Narrabri moving forward. It's what Hedda Aslan describes as a process of dispossession and displacement that results in the social and cultural death of small communities. So Thirdly, participants raised the lack of fairness and transparency across the actions of both Santos and the government when it came to pushing the project through the approvals process. Within the interviews, this this was most commonly expressed in reference to issues of mistrust in or lack of access to decision-making systems associated with planning for, for and impacts of the development. All participants, Framed the procedural structures surrounding the assessment and approval of the Narrabri gas project as illegitimate and untrustworthy. In particular, this was explored through the lack of observable accountability for the proponent to either meet their safety and community obligations or be held responsible for any failures to do so. Um, Within procedural justice scholarship, it's recognised that simply listening to communities without giving observable weight to what's being said, and crucially while continuing to prioritise the outside knowledge of experts, is an injustice within itself. Not only are community members experts in their own right, but to recognise this begins to break down the established structures of privilege that dictate who is being heard within political processes. Those interviewed called for decision makers to respect the understanding that community members have for their home and land. The rejection or oversight of this knowledge is both insulting to the affected affected population and it's unjust. In order to allow community members a fair place in the procedural process, They must be recognised for the wealth of knowledge that develops from lived experience within the region and this knowledge must be considered with equal weight to the assessment of independent experts. And I think I'll leave it at that. Thank
3: you very much, Gemma. So there's some really fantastic comments going on in the chat. Um, I'm very much enjoying with how how people are engaging with the comments coming from Rosemary, David and Gemma. Um, I'd like to now go to Madeline. Um, because as our sort of gas expert, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the prospect of the shift away from gas in New South Wales and Australia more broadly and what sort of policy settings you think we need to be able to do that. Thank you, Susan. And first of all, I'd like to
2: acknowledge I'm coming to you all today from the land of the Camaragal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders who have millennia taken care of this land, past, present and emerging. I'd also like to thank Rosemary in particular for being here today and sharing her story and it is through community and it is through the custodians of the land that you are as farmers that we can really hear what's going on with transparency on the ground. And I'd also like to acknowledge uh, some of my colleagues and friends who are farmers who are on the land line, line today from the Darling Downs, Zena Ronfeldt in particular who are fighting the fight every day against coal seam gas, um, Zena in particular who has illegal drilling, uh, essentially directional drilling going underneath her land, and there is no legal basis for that, it's illegal, and she is now having to fight that fight. So I just want to acknowledge all of the farmers um, here today, thank you for being here. I'd like to start off, I suppose, by saying I think a theme that really Rosemary has championed today is about intervention. Intervention. What's interesting about our regulation today is how the government will intervene so actively into fossil fuels, so much so that we now have a gas-fired power plant, that is curry curry, injecting $600 million into that gas-fired power plant when the IEA, when the World Business Council, when multiple uh, bodies who are actually quite conservative in their bent have warned against new greenfield gas-fired power plants. So, we're in, we're in a stage essentially where we've got a federal government who is solidified through their gas fired recovery policy document, solidified through the pamphlet of net zero um, that has been sort of touted out, and through other various documents. And what that means is that it is about communities, once again, fighting this fight and pushing to try and reform the law. And we saw that really actively in New South Wales when it came to zombie PELs, the zombie PEL license inquiry that I presented at, where unfortunately we were unable to change Section 20 of the Petroleum Act, and we still will have zombie licenses, but thankfully there were some abolished But what the problem with that, of course, is that the Liverpool Plains remains a sacrificial zone. And that is the problem. This is just the beginning and why we have to continue to fight every day to change the law and policies. And again, Darling Downs is living, breathing evidence of that. Um, And as David's touched upon, there are many basins that are looking to be opened up, including the Beedaloo, and there's a legal action against that at the moment. So really community legal action is the way things get done. It's the way we can get results and way we can push back, essentially. Looking forward, um, New South Wales is a very interesting state because what we tend to do from a legal perspective, I suppose, and from a policy perspective is to take um, direction essentially from the federal government. So why was Narrabri approved? Essentially because of the memorandum of understanding between the federal government and the New South Wales government to inject 70 petagels, the exact figure that Narrabri is touted to produce, that is why. So meanwhile, we have Matt Keen and we have others of that sort of mindset saying that this is a white elephant, uh, Narrabri and curry curry, but it's it's not enough. Um, That's really lip service to me until there's legal changes and policy changes. We've just had the New South Wales Hydrogen Strategy released, which thankfully calls out blue hydrogen, which is used with methane. Essentially, it's produced using methane and CCS, that it would not be cost effective and it would be too late uh, to produce it at scale. And so we're investing in renewable hydrogen. But by the same token, we are basically giving positive market signals to Narrabri. So it's a very um, unjust response. It is certainly in no way legalistic. Um, that's, that's the case in our, in our net zero pamphlet, but also within our hydrogen strategy. There's, not, there's no regulatory reform yet, and our current regulation is actually incompatible with hydrogen, and that's because of um, a technical law called the National Gas Law. So essentially what it all comes down to is that the government intervenes to prop up and to solidify the regulatory capture, I suppose, of these different proponents. And communities have the power, like the Dubbo Regional Community, who is actually trying to push for a gas decarbonisation plan in New South Wales to push forward policy. And what we've seen in other jurisdictions, particularly in the and a little bit in Victoria and now in New South Wales, is actually community ownership of energy. And participating in the energy mix, particularly farmers who are land custodians. And this is around things like renewable energy zones. The central Arana renewable energy zone is going to be shovel ready by 2022. There's huge employment opportunities, huge policy opportunities for us to be a leader there. And New South Wales is the first to commission such a renewable energy zone. There's many, many around um, the, the nation, of course, but that's just a few and this this cooperative energy being which has been so successful in the EU particularly Germany and Denmark to actually Um, allow off-grid communities to have ownership over their energy, to buy in, to have a one-member, one-vote system. We have a regulatory landscape for that already, and farmers are the original cooperatives. They really are. And and agriculturalists know how to um, collectivise and how to cooperate and have that social trust and fabric that Gemma was paying homage to earlier. So there are so many different policy settings that we need to grab And we need to do it in a way that is putting pressure through research and through community advocacy and through uh, farmers basically standing up and not allowing illegal drilling to take place, not allowing to be sort of bullied into submission, but to push forward on these sorts of really positive policies And we've we've only got roadmaps, I suppose, from the New South Wales perspective around renewable energy zones and hydrogen. So it's now time to put in place policies around that, how to essentially reduce gas demand, how to ensure that we have policies, that um, we have no new buildings, for example, being connected to gas, something that was essentially banned in San Francisco. This is the way in which we can use the law to help rather than being a hindrance as it has been for so many decades. So I'll leave it at that because I know there's been some great comments in the chat, so I'm sure we'll get to that.
3: Thanks very much, Madeline. Actually, if I could follow up because we're going to move now to the question and answer point of, of the, the panel. Um, we've got questions that have been submitted to us uh, prior to, to, to beginning. Um, and one of the questions that comes up is, um, you know, what sort of alternatives exist? What sort of regulatory requirements do we need you've listed quite a few things that need to happen but what do you see is the most immediate?
2: The most immediate is renewable energy zones so that is the most shovel ready. Renewable hydrogen is the biggest hope it's the the miracle molecule as it's so often called but it's not going to be shovel ready or ready to be rolled out at commercial scale as yet it's a bit too expensive still so instead to basically power the electrolyzer to create the renewable hydrogen by splitting, I suppose, uh, the atom of oxygen and hydrogen. We need to create these renewable energy zones and industrial manufacturing hubs. That is absolutely crucial. And these are going in regional areas. The majority of the best uh, sun and wind resources is in regional areas. And that's where we need to be focused on decentralizing the grid and empowering these communities to actually be the power hubs of the future. So that's the first policy that we can look to and say, well, here for a renewable energy zone, it's not just about making it really easy for people to bid and, you know, create lovely solar farms everywhere and wind farms. It's actually about local content provisions, ensuring that there's local employment, skills and training and making that absolutely crucial and I suppose a condition for these proponents who are bidding, so yet again the government is not intervening here. What they're doing is they're producing a framework, which is renewable energy zones, and allowing industry to, I suppose, bid on it. But you know, on on the flip side, we've got Curry Curry, and we've got um, the government allowing uh, the Moomba CCS project in South Australia now to be operational on carbon credits. So as you can see, this this interventional um, point. For us, it's about community, I suppose, being able to intervene and coming through and demanding these sorts of conditions. So that would be the most uh, tangible, I suppose, shovel-ready policy that we could be asking for. The second is about reduction in gas demand. And My wonderful colleague Tim Baxter authored a report very recently for the Climate Council looking at how the New South Wales government can very quickly and easily reduce gas demand. About 30% of, of gas uh, demand in New South Wales is for households. So, how to electrify appliances essentially and to no longer allow gas pipelines into new buildings, these sorts of things. Very actually quite simple yet effective policy mechanisms that can be really um, taken advantage of now whilst we work on renewable hydrogen and getting that to economies of scale.
3: That's really great. You've given us a lot to think about, Madeline. And, and one of the things I think um, is, is quite surprising, well, perhaps not surprising, but just how quickly. Alternatives are being thrown up by the federal government that reinforce this gas-led recovery idea. So, I want to go to you, David, just quickly, if you can um, answer Rebecca Shack's question about how we can debunk the benefits of the gas-led recovery for the general public who may be anxious about the economy post-pandemic.
1: The notion of debunking assumes that what we have is a rational public policy debate. And I don't think we do have a rational public policy debate. So, um, yes, we should all facts are a necessary but insufficient condition. Uh, yes, we should uh, always talk about what gas does to country and water, what gas is doing to the um, climate, and talk about the fact that there are better economic alternatives. But it, that's not the realm in which it's being um, in which it's being contested, which is really um beyond beyond all reason um now in relation to the the coalition the current federal coalition really what we see is um fossil fuels becoming the sort of ditch they'll die in really it's quite remarkable um uh to see so um yeah i'm afraid i just i just don't think ultimately it's it's going to be one at the at the level of of debunking
3: thanks very much um rosemary i'd like to go to you now there's a question from heather and claude who's really wants to know what concerned community members can do to influence decision-makers to stop coal seam gas developments. And she's talking about the proposed Queensland Hunter Gas Pipeline route that goes straight through their farm. Do you have any sort of recommendations about what's worked for your community? The thing about the Hunter Valley
0: Gas Pipeline, which I'm very pleased about, is that once it leaves our area it goes into the scone area so this pipeline is taking on the likes of the the godolphin thoroughbred stud Um, you know and these people are big players in within the government so they have got quite a lot of influence Um, you know so i think heather is probably um i wouldn't know i would be more confident asking madeline to get the legal viewpoint of it because This is a a pipeline that's been um, null and void for probably about 11 or 12 years, and none of the landowners have heard anything about it. And then suddenly in the last couple of years, uh, the last couple of months, really, people have been approached and, and, you know, continuing on with the pipeline. There are people that have built houses and garages over this pipeline. There are people that have um, had no idea they've bought properties where this pipeline was supposed to go. So... It's a huge shock to everybody in in this area that some forgotten thing should come up and threaten everybody the way that pipeline does. I mean, well, I don't want nobody. Nobody wants a pipeline because it's a sort of a common thing wherever pipelines go, gas fields will follow. It's like the railroads of the you know the West, the Wild West. So we, um, it's just the whole United community. Issues, I think, and trying to find um, hope that another National Party man will um, fall off his perch as badly as what Michael Johnson did, and we all had to be um, very quickly given something to go to an election on unfortunately, that's what I see there's.
3: I think certainly voting with your feet at the ballot box is an important strategy. It's only one of those strategies. Madeline, we're going to go to you to hear your legal perspective, but then I'd also like to bounce back to Gemma to hear what strategies have, have also worked in terms of different communities fighting these same issues. Madeline? Yes, thank you for that, Rosemary. Um
2: I suppose this is why Santos and the Narrabri project has always been a Trojan legal horse, as I always say to, to David and, and as we discuss, because this signals that pipelines can go ahead and be built and we've got, you know, essentially a special activation precinct, it's called in legal terms, whereby the government can produce one-stop shop planning approvals, and that's exactly what's starting to take place. And this is even before Narrabri is given a final investment decision, and it really reminds me of the way in which the commercial writing on the wall was that this is not a commercially viable asset. It's going to be a stranded asset. Nobody's going to want LNG like this. Our, our export partners, they've all committed to net zero, the top you know, 70% of them, essentially. They're going to want renewable hydrogen. So why are we building pipelines? And those gas pipelines, by the way, are not compatible with renewable uh, hydrogen at all because of embrittlement. So we don't even have the laws to essentially say, well, this pipeline is not going to be sustainable for the long term. So that, you know, legal argument of, well, we can't, you know, basically it's not going to be a sustainable piece of infrastructure. It will be a stranded asset. And that is because it's not compatible with hydrogen, which is the fuel of what exactly what we need now, essentially. And it's so concerning because pipelines, I mean, as we saw in the Narabai appeal dismissal, when we had that really great legal argument around the fact that you're not taking into account the impacts, legally speaking, of a pipeline being built here in in the Narabai project. And Chief Justice Brian Preston dismissed that in saying, well, that's a separate legal entity, it's a separate legal, I suppose, um, analysis. And, And that just says to me, well, where's the cumulative impact here? Where is it in the law? It's not there. And this cascading effect around impact and damage. And in a lot of different jurisdictions, including Queensland, damage to arable land is not seen as an environmental impact. So it's it's about Mm. the fact that we don't actually protect arable land as being finite in the same way that we would, say, an ecological corridor. It's got a different legal status. And it just perpetuates this issue around, well, gas and pipelines and everything else is seen as just being a temporary legal um, setting, a temporary sort of infrastructure, and it'll be decommissioned and everything will be fine. And that's just simply not the case, particularly when we're looking at fugitive emissions. And the way in which we have well abandonment that's happened um, completely in, in terms of the shale gas revolution that happened in the US. Now we have companies filing for Chapter Eleven, left, right, and centre, leaving abandoned wells and leaving governments, local communities to clean it up. So it's a huge legal risk of being a stranded asset, and and the regulation is not fit for purpose at all.
3: Excellent. Thanks, Madeline. I want to turn to Gemma now because um, you've been looking at different resistance strategies. Um, by communities um, and how they feel ab- about having to respond to fossil-, fossil fuel extraction. But I also want to tack on to that, if I can, this question that's come from uh, C. More Hardy, who's asked why-, why do communities have to host other industries? I mean, they're, they're farming land, it's arable, uh, it- it's grazing. Why-, why do we need to, to be renewable energy hubs or-, or have the ground dug out from under us?
4: Thanks, Susan. Um in terms of the second half of that question, I can definitely try to tackle it, but I'm also sure that Madeline will have uh, something to add to it as well. Cause I know that this was an area of uh, work that you've done extensively, but so I thought I would just like try to scoot in um, to the first half of that question that Rosemary and Madeline have um, both addressed really beautifully. But I guess if I could speak very briefly to the other part of the audience that isn't necessarily from communities, aren't necessarily having to face these direct impacts. Um, I know that this question about sort of like what we can do to influence governments was about concerned community members. But I think that something that's really important is that those of us who aren't from these regions, those of us who aren't from communities that are facing these direct impacts, don't lose sight of the fact that there are people at the center of these sort of existential climate debates that we are constantly having. And so the fact that when we talk about the sort of Narrabri gas project and coal mining and and everything to do with COP and everything that's been going on, obviously, we want to talk about emissions, we want to talk about net zero and, and all of these bigger questions, but then also making sure that we are there on the ground or in whatever way we're required to support communities who are at the heart of this and that we don't lose sight of them. And I think, you know, Rosemary and... So many of the others in the in the chat so far have so beautifully expressed themselves in the extent to which they are already being impacted. Um, And then I guess, yes, to try to address the sort of that second question about about why um, farming land should should even have to share. I do want to sort of see if I can throw to someone else who has a little bit more expertise on this. But um, I guess the thing that I would like to highlight and maybe this is a little bit too theoretical for this conversation, but um, one of the things that really strikes me is that we need to respect and recognize farming and farming practices and farming generations as, as cultural practices and community practices. And that anything that sort of sacrifices, as Rosemary said, that that land and sacrifices this, what is a finite, finite resources, resource, The loss of that is not just the loss of agriculture it's not just the loss of a sort of food bank essentially it's also a loss of a culture and a community and a way of life for so many people both going back generations and going forward generations
3: no thank you for that madeline did you want to come in on this question
2: yeah i think um farmers have for decades been under pressure but under pressure to either Um, use different techniques that they're not, you know, um, I suppose, comfortable with for um, agricultural activities. Uh, Now they've come up against uh, fossil fuels, and now there's this other threat of renewable energy. And it's definitely the case that the most arable land which is so finite on our continent needs to be excluded and that's exactly what's happened for example in France Um, all of the agricultural land that's considered to be top quality agricultural land is not able to be developed for anything other than agriculture and there's actually you know safeguarded arable regions and we've tried to do this sort of in Australia in Victoria with uh, green zones um, and we've failed miserably at doing that with the Regional Planning Interest Act in Queensland, which has been an absolute disaster and has been spearheaded by the Gasfields Commission to push through and merely just have an expert, expert wave the legal wand, I suppose, to um, extract on arable land. So it's about safeguarding that. And for, you know, big um, pastoral leases, let's say, in WA, for example, um, again, we have this contestation, right, because pastoral leases are a very different type of tenure in terms of property law. There are diminished rights, and we've now got a renewed threat there of renewable energy zones going into pastoral zones, which have um, very different rights depending on which state you're in as well. So it is a threat and it's about safeguarding that land and it's for the farmers who do wish to have um, co-location with with their land, with renewable energy, to do things like agricultural PV and agro-PV that I'm looking into at the moment for co-benefits, for actual benefit sharing rather than a farmer having to just host uh, something on their land and getting compensation every now and again. It's actually about getting benefits out of that as well. And there are lots of trials um, in New South Wales in the Parks region actually looking into that now, particularly with grazing, so not, not cropping so much because uh, the science is still kind of out on the impact, obviously, of UV, PV on things like spinach and things like that. So it's more about, um, I suppose, livestock grazing. So it's definitely a place that we need to be looking after and ensure that we are not... Um, allowing regulatory settings to just treat agricultural land the exact same as any type of tenure use. And that's particularly the case, like I say, with pastoral leases.
3: Thank you, Madeline. There are so many questions and the discussion in the chat is absolutely fantastic. I want to keep it uh, tight and keep it focused on gas because there's obviously broader questions here about capitalism, about the nature of the fossil fuel order. Um, But if I can go to you, David, and ask you, um, a question that has come in the chat from George as to whether or not um, we'd be uh, okay with interruptions to our electricity supply if we do shift to renewables. What would be your response to that?
1: My response would be that we we don't need to be, um, that there are multiple technical studies that show that we can do an orderly transition with electricity supply within 10 years um, based on solar and wind um, backed up by batteries. And I think we can be particularly confident that that's the case because we have seen um, the move of uh, Australia's four most trusted um, brands, all of which are major retailers, to commit to 100% renewable electricity by 2025 or sooner. That's Coles, Woolworths, Bunnings and Aldi. Now, whether you're one of the um, large number of Australians who apparently does trust these companies more than any others or not, um, as businesses, they're going to make hard-nosed decisions about reliability and they've all decided that they they simply don't need um, uh, filthy fossil fuels in their electricity mix. That um, renewables are reliable. Uh, that the numbers work. They're cheaper. Um, so I think I think we have really a complete answer. I think that I think the reliability debate is basically over. Um, and if I may, I just wouldn't mind really quickly coming back to the the points Madeline was making because I think they're absolutely absolutely fundamental. Um, some years ago, I asked a, a colleague who uh, worked for, many years ago, was still a, an Indigenous rights lawyer in WA, and asked a colleague who worked for a mining company, um, was there anywhere you, you wouldn't mine? And he sort of looked at me in surprise and said, what do you mean? And I said, well, what if, there, what if you found the world's largest deposit of something or other under Uluru? And he looked at me and he said, well, we'd just work out how to extract it without, without damaging the, the rock. And um, that conversation has stuck with me because it, it epitomises a kind of extractive mentality. And I think where we have reached as a, as a country, as a people, uh, we've, we've reached the sort of end game of where that extractive mentality takes us. And where I see the, the horizon is that we actually need a whole lot of quite different laws and uh, or, and evolved institutions to reflect the reality that we need constraint that it's not okay to dig up our best agricultural country to bleach our reefs to fill our cities full of pollution to do all of these things that, that we actually need a a legal system that is tool to protecting what is important rather than assuming that everything can be sacrificed in the name of an ideology of extraction so i just i agree with that analysis um very very strongly
3: thank you david I I do need to ask this question. It is something that's just recently uh, come out of COP26. Um, I'd maybe like to go down and see who of the panellists would like to answer this. Uh, But Wendy asked this question as to whether or not the states could meet the methane pledge of 30% reduction by 2030. Madeline, would you like to to start off? Is this possible? So the new pledge
2: to reduce um, by 30% is according to 2020 levels, that, that actual packed So legally it looks great, but in terms of is it ambitious enough? No, it's not, in my opinion. It's definitely not ambitious enough if we are to pay homage to listen to the IPCC in saying that methane's, methane is essentially the um, most rapidly rising uh, greenhouse gas emission that we have and it's coming it's very very much so being uh, labeled as being more potent as well on a sort of decade by decade basis about you know 26 percent conservatively Could the states do this? Um, Certainly they could, but I would urge them to do more. I would urge them to do what, for example, Victoria is doing and ACT is doing, which is basically reducing gas demand and shifting away from gas. And at the moment, Victoria has got the process of going through um, essentially getting out of gas and they've got a roadmap going into that. That's not to say Victoria is perfect. Obviously, they've just opened up the Otway Basin again, a huge amount of acreage for offshore gas. So they're definitely not perfect. Um, And what we need to do is is ensure that states, when when they're doing policies like this, getting out of gas, that they're stopping exporting it as well. That would be great because that's our biggest problem, right? It's about the exports and it's about the methane we are pumping into other economies. So the states could legally do such a thing, of course they could. Um, some states have legislated targets, some haven't, some have climate change acts, some don't. And we are we're quite fragmented in how we're doing these sorts of things in Australia. I think um, the best way, though, moving forward is is definitely to say, okay, we're going to uh, get rid of gas and we're going to reduce gas demand. We're going to ensure, for example, insecure tenants um, are able to get off gas and we're going to produce uh, protections for them under a Residential Tenancies Act to ensure that they are not um, penalised with, let's say, um, gas, um, I suppose, network charges. So when you you actually stop gas, you often have to pay a fee. These are the sorts of real-world things that policies and laws need to be doing. Um, so, in terms of the the thirty percent mandate, of course, Australia did not sign up to that. Most of about half of the world's top LNG exporters didn't which is obviously, uh, unfortunately, predictable for us, um, but it's a great shame. So I think it's about a toolkit of things, and we need to ensure that it's a just transition, like is saying, so that there aren't um, tenants and insecure, um, I suppose, communities who are suffering that are being basically left with gas appliances. We don't want that either. Excellent.
3: Rosemary, would you like to say some final words before we conclude?
2: Well,
0: yes, but I just believe that the gas industry is an industry that just must be stopped. There's no, there's no, there's no good side to it. So, you know, it, it's, I think you can do the old-fashioned campaigning where you write to your local member and really start doing all of that. And and then, you know, unfortunately our local member is Barnaby Joyce, so possibly not much point writing to him. But he he still at the end of the day says, well, no one's contacted me because none of us really think that it's worthwhile to contact him. So I don't know. It's just an industry that has to be stopped. There's so many negatives on it. And, you know, look, fingers crossed the economics of it look bad. Everything looks bad about it. So there we go.
3: No, thank you very much. I think it's very important to put on the public record that constituents of the acting prime minister do not feel that they are being listened to. Um, David, on that note, we've got about two minutes. Would you like to say anything to conclude?
1: Well, I think Rosemary's comments absolutely set the tone. Um, this is an industry that has to be stopped, and maybe maybe I can finish by just restating the fundamentals. Um, we have a global ecological and climate crisis. That crisis is being driven above all by coal, oil and gas, our government should have as its primary obligation the safeguarding of the future health, prosperity and well-being of Australians and also, forgive the gendered language, the patrimony of our country, our inherited shared public assets. It is Painfully and abundantly clear that our federal government, in particular, but also all too often our state and territory governments, are egregiously if failing, failing to meet that fundamental duty. In the absence of them exercising that obligation, all there is is all of us using all that we have at our disposal, our words, our bodies our energy, our learning, our love for the country, our determination to stop them in their tracks. That is what we must do and that is what we will do.
3: Thank you very much. Thank you to all of our speakers and thank you to everybody that has joined in this webinar. And, of course, stay up to date with our other upcoming events and news coming out of the Sydney Environment Institute. You can, of course, subscribe to the monthly newsletter Link also in the chat or follow us on Twitter at Sydney SEI Sydney or on Facebook. So thank you very much and have a good evening.